questions you always had. The answers you were never given. The place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. Greetings to everyone around the world, and a warm welcome to a new season of Veritas. Tonight we celebrate another Veritas birthday. Veritas turns 11. And with that, we begin season 12. I hope everyone had a nice Thanksgiving, even though every day should be a day where we engage in gratitude. And speaking of gratitude, a few days ago I received a message from a young lady in Australia. As promised, I will start featuring your voice messages at the beginning of our program. Here's a message from Jasmine. Hi Mel, greetings from Australia. This is Jasmine, and first of all, I wanted to say a heartfelt thank you for the incredible gift that you've given to me in my life through Veritas. I was 16 years old when I started listening to your show, and I'm 25 years old now. I have a question which I've been wanting to ask you for some time, and that is, if you had one piece of advice that you would wish to impart to this young generation, what would it be? Thank you, and as always, take care. Bye-bye. Well, Jasmine, first let me tell you, this is one of the most humbling messages I have ever received. Truthfully, I didn't think young people were listening to this program, but I'm glad that you are. Let me try to answer your question. I would say this. Work hard. Don't cut corners. Save money as early as you can. Think for yourself. And most importantly, speak the truth especially in a time where political correctness is just censorship in disguise. I also want to share the following with you because sometimes we have moments when we don't seem to be satisfied with our lives. And it's all about perspective. When we change the way we look at things, the things we look at change. It reads like this. Sometimes you are unsatisfied with your life, while many people in this world are dreaming of living your life. A child on a farm sees a plane fly overhead and dreams of flying. But a pilot on the plane sees the farmhouse and dreams of returning home. That's life. Enjoy yours. If wealth is the secret of happiness, then the rich should be dancing on the streets. But only poor kids do that. If power ensures security, then officials should walk unguarded. But those who live simply sleep soundly. If beauty and fame bring ideal relationships, then celebrities should have the best marriages. Live simply, walk humbly, and love genuinely. All good will come back to you. And as always, I want to thank you, Veritas member, for allowing this platform to continue. You are listening to Veritas. If this is your first time, welcome home. To listen to tonight's full interview and all of our material, join the Veritas family and click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. You can make your purchase with a credit card, PayPal, cash, check, money order, and even cryptocurrency. We are now accepting Bitcoin, Litecoin, and Ethereum. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for Focused Life Force Energy, MMS, CBD Pure Hemp Oil, Divinia Water, Pure Organic Sulfur flash drives with all our Sanitas and Veritas seasons, and other great products. And if you want to get in touch with Mel, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button of our website at veritasradio.com. 
And if you're listening on YouTube, like, subscribe, and share it. And click the bell to be notified when new interviews are available. And now, here's your host, Mel Fabregas. When you attend a conference or a special event, there is usually a shaman, an elder, a philosopher, someone who can impart wisdom upon us. It has become a tradition to have someone very special to all of us. He has devoted many years of his life to transformational spiritual growth in both hermetic and esoteric Christian traditions. His synthesis of wisdom, eloquence, and forthrightness has helped to earn his reputation as a widely respected figure in contemporary spiritual teaching and has made him a permanent fixture on this modern-day mystery school we call Veritas. In addition to decoding current world events, we'll discuss knowing good and evil, right and wrong, truth and falsehood, the counterculturalism of real spirituality, and much more. We are all eternal students, practicing every day to become better human beings. Tonight, Veritas becomes Classroom Earth, and our teacher is Neil Kramer. His website is neilkramer.com. Neil, thank you for joining me once again. Welcome back. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure, as it always is. Very glad to be with you. Always, always a pleasure. You know, it's interesting because we were talking before we began, and the last time I spoke with you was exactly a year ago. But it feels like we talked yesterday. <laughs> is it that we're getting old? or Because they say that time is a spiral, and as you get older, it feels that it's really accelerating. Is that true, or is time really accelerating, and we just don't notice I think certainly as you get older, your experience window for knowing what it is to pass, pass through the seasons and pass through anniversaries and birthdays and Christmas and this and that, that the older you get and the more contextualization you have for knowing what it is to go through a year, the faster it appears to pass. Also, though, on top of that, I would certainly say that when you examine theological matters like eschatology, the study of the end of the world, essentially, you often come across the idea that as you near the end, it speeds up because a lot of things are happening faster and where certain cultural and political and personal matters, you know, used to take a very long time, you know, generations to slowly evolve. Near the end, they happen very, very quickly. And it gives the impression that time is speeding up. So I would say, personally, for me, both of them, I'm getting older and time passes faster, which is a, a gift, really, because it whizzes by. So you, you learn to take each moment as a, a moment, an opportunity for gratitude and acknowledgement and recognition. And you, you look at things more carefully, you listen to things more carefully and hold and touch and taste things more carefully. So it's a, a spiritual test aging and the the passage of time but certainly when you do what i do and you do what you do and many of the listeners we look out into the world and it's hidden layers spiritually and parapolitically and esoterically you can't help but notice that things are moving at a fast pace now and um as we'll come to say i think that fast pace for the first time in a long time is in our favor so that's that's a nice thing to observe. By the way, I wanted to ask you something unrelated to tonight's interview. Actually, it's actually related. But I gave my reaction to a 
that voicemail, an audio clip that somebody left on our website of a young lady. Her name is Jasmine. She started listening to Veritas when she was 16. She's now 25. And it's probably one of the most humbling messages I've ever received. And in addition to that, I've gotten, I've received a lot of email from people who say that they were introduced to us by their children. One of them is eight-year-old. Oh, yeah, you need to listen to the Veritas guy, an eight-year-old. Yeah. And I'm thinking, you know, for years, I've never used profanity. I've always conducted my interviews as professionally as possible. But, you know, they were more tailored for adults. I never yes, intended yes. it for to be for children. But knowing now that a lot of the, the young people are listening to us, I gave her my response. But I'd like you to give her a response. Sure, I'd love to. Seek truth, do good, and share the truth that you come upon will help you be a better man, a better woman. And the wisdom that you gain from your righteous conduct and your wisdom, you should share with others uh, who have the ears to hear and the eyes to see. You should share it. So if you make truth the basis of your personal philosophy, you won't go far wrong. You will know, though, and this young lady will know already, that most of the time that will involve swimming against the tide and will involve, as we mentioned in the, the show notes, being countercultural, essentially. So real spiritual life always <clears throat> opposes the mainstream culture. So all my most dearly held principles in my life mainly oppose the mainstream culture of empire. We'll come to that later, but that's what I'd say to her. And I'll let me add this to it, if I may. Um, every year, I I do a a, a, um, a a lecture series. Sometimes we call it a conference, a seminar, a workshop. Sometimes, and it's basically I I go to a venue. I've done it in various places in Washington and Oregon and California and different places. And the past five years, I've been doing it in New York at this uh, place called the Omega Institute for Holistic Studies. It's, it's kind of like a, a spiritual retreat center, like a miniature college, and they have like 10 classrooms, and many thousands of people go there over the year to see lots and lots of different teachers, and I'm just one of them. So I use the Omega Institute to do this annual get-together, and people come from all over the world and sit with me for three days and listen to me talk and ponder and contemplate. This last year, just a, a couple, this this year rather, just a couple of months ago in September, uh, we had the, a great hundred and something people, which is quite a lot considering they're there for three days just for me, just to listen to me yakking on for three days, and it's quite deep work as well. It's not, it's not light-hearted. It's quite pr profound in terms of what I ask the audience to think about. It's hard work. But what was lovely this year was there were several teenagers there, two 16-year-olds, one 18-year-old and one 19-year-old, so four people under the age of 20. And every single one of them as well came up to me afterwards and sort of shook my hand and said, thank you for what you do. I've been listening for years. So a 16-year-old, I've been listening for years. And it was like, it's those moments, Mel, I'm sure you'll agree, that make it all worth it. Because I enjoy what I do anyway, and I know you do. But, you know, we don't have to do this. There's lots of other things to do. And some days, especially when you get flack and people are calling you names and racist and bigoted and ridiculous and stupid because you think this or you think that, some days you just 
throw your hands up and think, well, you know, honestly, sometimes it's a bit of a nuisance. But not not so much. I don't feel too bad about that. Mostly I enjoy what I do. And I would do it anyway, even if no one was listening. I'm still going to write and record and make stuff. And most of my work is with teaching individuals. And every single day of the year, people, you know, I, I would fill every day of the year up with that if, if I allowed that to happen in my calendar. So the, the brunt of my work is not media. It's not doing venues because, you know, I'd do things very differently if I was doing that. Most of my work is spent with individuals, uh, sometimes online and sometimes in person, sometimes in small groups, occasionally in large groups. And some of those people have actually, the younger people, the parents have contacted me and said, will you mentor my son, for example? Um, And I speak to the parents first, then speak to the kid. And, you know, they're just basically employing me like they'd employ a homeschool teacher sometimes or they'd employ somebody to listen not so much as a counselor or a therapist but just as a sort of lucid witness so on the one hand it's very wonderful because frankly if you want to make big changes you've got to talk to the young people and on the other hand it's very sad because although the people I speak to and the families do very well it reminds me out there elsewhere in the world how few people have any wise elders to speak to I'm not even classifying myself as that yet believe me but how how few people we can turn to in life to share the deepest things with in a meaningful way in person in our life on a day by day or week by week basis i'll tell you most people have nobody absolutely nobody and even when you go to a conference or a workshop it's you know it's an event it's not everyday life it's a one off really or you know two or three times a year so i think part of the lesson for me is especially working with young people is we have to build better local opportunities for people to come together because it's missing in society and it, it that's a problem so i think that's where a lot of my thinking and effort goes at the moment into making places we can come to to gather and talk socially professionally to listen to learn um as a church would do but most churches don't succeed in that but the the the, even the word for church comes from the word ecclesia and ecclesia means those who feel summoned to a higher purpose perhaps a divine purpose when they congregate, that's what ecclesia means. So it's a congregation of those who feel called to something higher than themselves. So the very word for church originally meant that, ecclesia, like, you know, ecclesiastical council or ecclesiastical philosophy or whatever. Um, that's what it meant. And I think that's that's what we have to look at seriously here because most families and schools and workplaces and social situations don't provide that deep contact. So you need something higher than the ordinary, which ordinary people all um, administrate. You know, it could be me and you and a couple of other guys and a couple of other ladies, and we're the people who organize. And we have some speakers and this and that. People come together. So it's no one individual. It's it's never the Mel Fabregas show or the Neil Kramer show. It's just creating an opportunity for people to actually do that together. That that doesn't exist. So when I speak to those 16-year-olds, which I do, as you do, 
and they they go through life they say yeah i'm i'm trying to find that in my everyday life in france in america in new zealand in germany in you know indonesia wherever they are they're trying to find it because it's hard to find you know growing up and by the way let me just say this it's not that i was losing hope for our youth but because i see technology being a double-edged sword the internet i thought that the internet was magnifying the hive mind. You know, as a, as a youngster, I remember I was always innately questioning dogma, questioning science, questioning organized religion. But again, this was before the internet. But now with this influence and ever the, the peer pressure, I am so impressed with these children and, and, and youths that step yeah. outside of that and come to us and say, listen, I'm not part of the matrix. I want to listen. I'm an open-minded skeptic, but I want to listen to what others are saying. And to me, I feel like I owe an apology to a lot of these youths because I thought, <laughs> I really thought that we were losing them. Well, it's it's a bigger number than you think who are knowing that there's something wrong with mainstream culture because it, it's it's sick. It's wrong. They know They know that. And I think... As we you step back and uh, saturated with the media and the websites and newspapers and broadcasts and radio, you'd be given to thinking that everybody is a um, collectivist, a relativist. Everybody is, everything's good, nothing's bad. You know, we're all the same, and you know that, that kind of horrific nonsense. You, you'd be worried that the children who'd been drenched in that from the age of sort of seven onwards to 14 and in their early 20s would be hopelessly poisoned by that uh, relativism. That's not true. Kids are very resilient. And I would say maybe, maybe most kids are not infected by that nonsense. Maybe. But it, the media doesn't want you to believe that. It wants you to think that you're in a, a hopeless situation. So I guess, you know, that that sort of leads us into the beginning of what I'm going to talk about, really. So do you want me to head on into my uh, thought process here? Before you do, you use the word equality. And I have a problem with that word. <laughs> because before we begin with that, I just want to address this for a moment. And when I hear the word equality, I just think, how boring would it be if everyone were to be equal? I enjoy differences. I enjoy the people around me who have different thoughts, people who look different than me. This is just the fabric of who we, who we are. Why is this equality being pushed left and right if this is not true? Well, equality, you know, if you put it through the decoder, it means division. So equality used by empire, this satanic world system, is basically a tool for division. Uh, so I'm, I'll, I'll talk about that in a in a few moments let, let me come to that because i do have something to say about that if i may um when when you said you know let's talk about this what do you want to talk about you've got some ideas i've got some ideas i decided upon uh a couple of things to talk about at a bit more length because you and i can talk about so many things so easily and even the side roads you know we were heading on the highway and we go off on a little country road for half an hour or an hour, it's so easily done. So <laughs> I'm just going to pull myself back onto the highway for a second because there's something I do want to sure. sh share with your guys today. But I'm going to come to that, Mel, because that's an important thing. And, and believe me, I'll, I'll, I've got a little note on the piece of paper here to make sure I come to that. But let, let me start off by saying, as we think about this idea of classroom earth, what I mean by that. 
and of, of course, as always, it's your show. So do interrupt, take me whatever direction you want. But I just have some thoughts generally that are percolating in my head that I want to get out there. I feel inspired to share it with the listeners right now. I, very often in my work, we remind ourselves of a, a small number of very fundamental questions, which you can boil down into three, really. What am I? What is this world? And what should I do? And I think these are perhaps the three most important questions a person could ever ask themselves. They're very naturally philosophical and metaphysical things to consider. And we should be thinking about them, frankly, I think. And you come to see that these questions um, are reflected really in the very heart of philosophy as a discipline itself. And you can see this if, if you examine the three main branches of modern philosophy. And I'll just tell you what they are because they help us ask a good question. Firstly, there is metaphysics. Uh, meta just means beyond, and physics means nature. So it, metaphysics is the study of that which is beyond nature. So like it or not, everyone listening to this show is metaphysically curious, metaphysically adept, maybe. So that's something that is a kind of fancy word for something that we all know. And the study of reality itself is metaphysical, therefore, because most of it is invisible. It's hidden. You can't see it beyond the natural physical world. It's invisible. And so it's a very mystical business metaphysics. It's not like a, an old man sat in an office doing scholarly work somewhere in a, in a university. It's a very physical thing to me. It's a very personal thing, metaphysics. And it, it sets up the question, what is real? That's what it asks. The, the second branch of philosophy that I use every day in my work is epistemology. And episteme means uh, knowledge. And ology or logy, you know, epistemology, means theory or science of or body of knowledge. So epistemology is the study of knowledge itself. And the question that this discipline helps us to ask and answer is, what is true? So that's what epistemology is centered on, helping us ask the question and answer it, what is true? And then finally, the third branch is something that is a, a more unusual word, axiology, A-X-I-O-L-O-G-Y. Axios just means value, and again, logy means theory or body of knowledge. So axiology is the theory of values, like morality, uh, distinguishing the worth of something, the quality of something, the proper thing to do, uh, virtuous conduct. And the question that this branch of philosophy helps us to examine is, what is good? So if you want to think about philosophy, not as some, as I say, dusty, you know, um, administrative, scholarly, academic pursuit that's too abstracted away from real life, but think of it as actually a discipline that every single person listening to this show has already started to exercise and cultivate in them. Some a little bit, some a lot. And that discipline helps us to examine reality itself, including ourselves, uh, the people around us, the society, nature, and God, the supernatural deity. And so we have these three questions that we can equip ourselves to explore. What is real? What is true? What is good? So philosophy equips a person to do that. And what I do is place a special emphasis on the spiritual nature of philosophy. 
that is, you know, you, you really can't get very far in understanding reality until you begin to accept the fact that a number of supernatural forces are at work, metaphysical forces outside of nature. And the main force behind everything is something that we call God. I'm happy to call that God. Sometimes people prefer to say the universe. Some people prefer to say source or origin or divinity because it's become unpleasant to say God because it has associations with very bad institutions that call themselves Christian, which I understand that. So, But tough luck because I like saying God. So anyone who has a problem with that, get over yourself. <laughs> so it's my contention then that the human being – like me and you and the listeners who, who finds themselves very inquisitive and hungry for wisdom, seeking some sort of transformation and revelation, is actually in a very perfectly natural state, and a state, I would say, that is designed to bring one closer to God. And how do you, how do you get there? How do you get closer to God, this incredible source of everything? How? Well, by every day asking our questions and seeking the answers for ourselves. What am I? What is this world? What should I do? What is real? What is true? What is good? So my working life and my personal life, which are very essentially, there's not much separation between them, is totally dedicated to contemplating these matters. And I'll say to you that an interesting three words, truth is available. It's it's not that hidden anymore. It's not relative. It's not, um, you know, uh, private to each individual. It's not debatable. Truth is truth. It's black and white. It's not customized to each person like all the world sciences and religions don't each have their own little equally valid pluralistic truth. No, there's truth, one truth. It's black and white. Same for everyone. So, Real spiritual philosophy is also countercultural in that it's quite absolutist. It's not relativist. We can't we can't all be right. Two plus two, does it equal four, three, or five? No, there's one right answer to that. And if three world religions all have different answers, you know what? Only one of them is right. So when you're looking at reality, it's not just some great big world where it's all customized to the individual. Reality is the world of the real, only what is real. And if you can't see it, you're still in it. You just can't see it. You're getting the wrong answers. You're misconceiving it. And I think that when you begin to very deeply consider reality, if you're interested in truth, and I know I am, and I know you are, and I know many of you listeners are, <laughs> can't imagine anyone would listen to your show who's not interested in truth. So everyone who's interested in truth you soon come to consider a very closely related thing, which is purpose. Purpose for oneself, for, for humanity, for earth, for everything. What is the purpose of it? So, you know, you might, it might be true that there is Bigfoot out there. I think there is. It might be true that energy weapons brought down the World Trade Center. Uh, things like aliens, extraterrestrials, ultra-dimensionals, chupacabras, time travel – bloody teleportation, you know, deep underground military bases, secret space programs, all that. I think most of those things are true. Not all of them, but many of them. And I think the phenomena of the real world, when you come to study these things and research them, is far more thrilling and extraordinary than any stupid sci-fi movies on Netflix or whatever. You know, real life is 
very amazing when you examine it carefully. However, however, even with all these amazing phenomena of life, so what? So what? What difference does it make? What difference does it make that Bigfoot and Flat Earth and Ultra Dimensionals and Bases, what, what do they make to your purpose, your life personally? And, you know, you could, you could go and ride with Bigfoot on an underground railway into the underground base at Sandpoint and time travel 500 years into the future and then come back again and meet the beings from the sixth dimension. So what? So what? How, how is that affecting your purpose? Because as we know, as the listeners know as well, some people use strange and incredible and curious phenomena and Machiavellian parapolitics to avoid their own life purpose, to evade their spiritual work, to dodge truth. Whereas, of course, the proper thing to do is to use the incredible reality that lies all around us to stimulate our purpose to examine the, the polarized situations in the world, to inspire and elevate a more accurate and honest worldview, to gain wisdom, to stop daydreaming. And so we leverage the incredible horror of the world and the incredible marvels of the world to uplift us. And we think more seriously then about, well, what is our individual life purpose? Sure, Mel educates us on all these things. Neil tells us, but what's the purpose? So what? What am I here for? Me, you, why? Why are we alive? And what, what should we do with the life we find in our hands every day, every hour, every second? So I'd like to propose to you what I think this world is. Because I think when we start to conceive of what it is, and you see the truth of that, if you, indeed you do, you may not agree, you may, it's up to the individual. But I think that when you see the truth of what the world is, it helps to answer a lot of our other metaphysical questions that we mentioned earlier. And I'd say it very simply like this. I believe Earth is a classroom. It's a place of learning. And it exists solely to teach every person about good and evil, about right and wrong, and about truth and falsehood. And we learn about those things through suffering and pain and through beauty and joy and wholeness and fragmentation and clarity and confusion, truth, lies. And when you acknowledge these you know, very stark opposites, these polarities, these conflicts and contrasts, you have to learn to discern. You, you have to distinguish and figure out the truth between one thing and another. What is true? What is good? And this is the teaching we are here for. This is the skill we've come to know. This is what it's all about. And if that is so, which I believe it is, and it's God-given, it's God-commanded, then the number one spiritual practice is to live as truthfully as you can. In, in your mind, certainly. In your heart, in your spirit, in action. To, to walk in truth no matter what. Now, sometimes that means you have to exercise a, a gentleness, some tact, some diplomacy, sure. And at other times, the reverse vigor is needed, incisiveness, force. And you have to also choose how to gracefully choose between those things. What's appropriate for the right place, the right time, the right moment? Not to blunder around like a bull in a china shop. How do you do it gracefully? How do you do it with a bit of class? How do you do it with 
um, virtue consideration. So th- I think that's the teaching we're here for, that to learn that, that skill. And I, I would say that um, one nice way of, I've heard it described is, you know, I heard a child talking to a, a religious, a good teacher, a religious teacher about a very similar thing that I've just said. And the kid said, why? Why learn about good and evil, right and wrong, truth and falsehood, or whatever the equivalents were? Why? The kid said. And the teacher said, it's God trying to find out who he can trust, who he can trust to reign with in the next world. So the entire endeavor of the classroom is for God to find out who is trustworthy, who can he trust to be with in the new heavens and the new earth? Who can he trust to reign with and create with and live with? Who? And this life demonstrates it's obligatory, it's compulsory, it's mandated. You either choose to be a trustworthy, good person, seeking truth, doing good, sharing that, or not. And nobody knows for sure whether you should do it or not. There's no absolute proof of anything. All we've got is our own instincts on this. So you see the ingenuity of it. You see the brilliance of the system. That all the people who demonstrate trustworthiness at the end of their life when they pass have done it of their own free will choice and only that because that's all you can ever do it by. So that's what this is. It's a a classroom to demonstrate trustworthiness and all the wonderful things in the world and all the disgusting horrors of the world. Those contrasts compel somebody to learn what they are and why they are. And as you do that, you then have to determine what your response is going to be intellectually, emotionally, physically, what you're going to do about it. And that will elevate some people, the elect, you know, the spiritually elect. It's a fair system. It's fair and square. Why? Because they elect themselves. So God didn't choose a particular bunch of people. If you examine scripture carefully, it's very clear that And all true-hearted Bible scholars, leading scholars would agree with that. There's no elect people, no ethnicity, nobody. The elect is those who choose themselves to follow in the pattern of the truthful human, which if you were a Christian would be the Christos, bearing the Zoe, the life-giving spirit, or if you were to put it simply, Jesus, just as a pattern of a truthful human. So, you know, that's where it gets a bit religious, and people who have a nasty taste in the mouth from Christianity might not enjoy that. So you can almost strip that out and still say the same thing. Most of my work um, has come from an esoteric background, but the Christian theology permeated everything. Everything. Gnosticism, Rosicrucianism, especially Hermitism, which I grew up with. It's very Christian, but not the Christianity of the Catholics or the you know, um, Mormons or the Jehovah Witnesses or the Seventh-day Adventists. It's not quite like that. It's a very pure, a very uh, incisive theology, which, as I say, I I love it because it's fair and square. You get to choose whether you're going to live on. You get to choose that yourself by how you conduct yourself in truth or in falsehood. And the scary thing about real Christian theology, the thing that is terrifying and marvelous at the same time is this. Not everyone makes it. Not everyone makes it. In ordinary New Age 
spiritual fantasy life, everyone makes it. We're all part of God. We're all one. And everyone makes it in the end. That's that's not true. That's not proven true as I've examined that and as many wise people have examined that. We're not all one. We're not all connected at this level at all. And not everyone makes it. And that is incredible. And you can imagine how unpopular that is in mainstream life. And even in Christian churches, that's a very unpopular view. (laughs) So it's fascinating the theology of this and the eschatology of this. And it seems to me that the, the brilliance of the system to demonstrate trustworthiness is that it's self-elected, as I say. So what that equates to at the end of the day is, you know, there's, there's, three, there's three pathways for a human being that are possible. One is to demonstrate truth and goodness in yourself. And when you screw it up, you correct yourself. When you make a mistake, you fix it. When you get it wrong, you fix it. So that would be the Christian idea of repentance. Simple as that. It just you make a mistake, you mess it up, you fix it. You acknowledge your mistakes. Ah, you know what? I got that wrong. I feel pretty bad about that because I've been saying that for a long time or doing that. And it's, I know it's wrong, and I'm not going to do it anymore. I, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to change. I'm going to turn. So I, I refuse to allow my own errors to define me. I can do better than this. So you you fix it. And you live in truth, and you elevate and uplift yourself, and you get a bit better, a bit stronger, a bit clearer day by day. That's the path to the new earth. That's what God is looking for, the people who choose that. The second path is those who basically are here for their own security and comfort and entertainment largely. And most of the life force is focused on that. They're here for themselves. They're not here to be the eyes and ears of the deity that crafted them. They're here for themselves. And they're here, they, they consider life not as a classroom, but as a playground. So when they get ill, they bitch about it. When something goes wrong, they think, why is this happening to me? When somebody suffers, they don't understand it. They think it's a playground and we should all have a happy, happy time and everyone should be just enjoying themselves thoroughly. That's not what this is for. This is like Navy SEAL training school, punishing hard by design. So those people, what happens when they pass, they get recycled, in my view, back into the ocean, the infinite ocean of God's being from where they came from. No individuation, though, because they didn't use it. They didn't give it. They didn't seek truth with it. They didn't do good with it. They certainly didn't share it. So the great gift of will. So when God says, let us make them in our image, what he's saying is, we'll give them the mind and spirit and flesh of the Godhead, the Trinity, and we'll give them free will so they can do what they want. And if you don't use that free will, then it is stripped from you and you return to where you came from. Not a bad thing for the unmindful person because they weren't worried about that before they came here, swimming in an infinite ocean of adoring love. They weren't bothered about that. They were part of a great whole. Everything was bliss. Nor should they be worried about it afterwards because it will be as it was before. The third category is those people who have not just been unmindful, but have been outright wicked, unremorseful. And when they screw up, they don't even care. And we're talking about the abusers and the pedophiles and the, you know, 
terrible things that go on in the world, sacrifices and just making life a misery, satanic misery on purpose, unremorseful. Those people are examined. And that examination in theology is called hell. And I feel it is a temporary zone where their actions are examined and brought forth into the truth of their own heart so they can see for the first and last time what they did and why they did it to themselves. And then they are returned back into the unindividuated state. So that system, is it not, is absolutely fair and square. Nobody can bitch about it and bellyache. Nobody can complain because everything is on your shoulders. You get to choose which path you want. And of course, the path, if you are using Christian theology as I've done all my life, is the first path is the path of salvation, which is simply continuity. It's going forward to be with uh, the creator. And that's, that's every year that I've examined that, the first time I came across that, I was 17. And now, 30 years later, every year that I've examined that concept, it's gained reality. It's gained crystallization. It's not faded. It's not become softer. It's become more and more real. Not because I've been sat in a room cementing it in my own private narcissistic head, but because I've gone out into the world and thought, well, let's see. That's quite an important thing, that big worldview. Let's see. Let's test it. Let's see what other men and women make of it. Let's see what people wiser than me feel about it and why. Let's see what young people think. Let's test it. So I've been testing that for 30 years, three decades now. It works. It absolutely works. And I've not come across anything vaguely better or similar. And as you push down this path, as my old teacher used to say to me when I was 25, he said, well, let's imagine for a minute, Neil, that that you've got your theology a bit upside down and some things are wrong. And, you know, how can we know, basically? The epistemology, it's, it's it's a very subtle art. You know, we can't know everything. But let's imagine that we've got some things right and some things wrong. Boy, oh boy, does spiritual life make better human beings, decent upstanding, moral, kind, strong, loving people. It does. So even if we've got our theology a bit upside down, it makes people better. So there's a very, very practical and physical side of it to me that is what in the end counts above nearly everything else, which is the embodiment of spiritual life is inescapable. When you meet a good guy, you think, you know what? That is just a good person. You meet a good woman, you think, holy cow, she is just amazing. She just radiates goodness. Everybody loves her. Everybody, Why? Why? Was she born like that? No. She's decided upon her path for truth and goodness. She's decided upon it and decided that that's the key thing in life. Just like it says in, in the uh, scriptures or whatever, you don't need to concentrate too much on the things of the world because the things of the world are going away. Don't love the things of the world. Concentrate on the spiritual nature, the thing behind it. That's what you should be looking at. I saw a story the other day of a grandmother playing with a grandchild, Monopoly. And the the child just loved the game and played it for weeks with her and became so addicted that uh, he just wanted to just buy every house, every rent, every house. And in the end, 
The grandmother went to him one day and said, you're getting really addicted about this. This is how life will be eventually if you don't control it, restrain it. Remember something, the Monopoly game and life, all those houses, all that money, they go back in the box. You never take that with you. And it's so important for people to understand that. It's great, great advice. Great advice for a young person. Really good, because you could miss that if you weren't looking carefully. So if, if we think about those things I was saying, that you know, our great work here is to demonstrate spiritual trustworthiness through engaging with good and evil, right and wrong, truth and falsehood, and making a choice. You know, what gets in the way of that? What, what prevents us from doing that in a more sustained and substantial way? What gets in the way of spiritual life? What prevents somebody from going about their spiritual work? And I would say it's, it's largely the belief, the sneaking suspicion that what we're actually in is just a sort of big cosmic accident, a random, meaningless, unintended world in which you know our presence is insignificant. There is no God. That's the big one. There is no God. There's no higher anything. Morality isn't uh, an emanation from God, which it is, but instead it's just a sort of cultural facet. It's a cultural attribute. It's epiphenomenal from a society. It's just what they decide is ethically acceptable. That's garbage. That's garbage. And they say there's no providence. There is only slow and random mutational evolution and sort of lowly animals passing on their genetic code for no great reason other than survival. And honestly, 99% of mainstream culture uh, and science and television, even the ones who pretend otherwise, that's really what they're saying. That's, that's it. So that's Satan's job. If we accept that as a, just for fun for a minute, let's pretend that Satan's a real thing, a real force on the earth. Let's just go along with that. His job is to persuade us that there's no God. And he raises voices in the mainstream population who also believe this. Some, some knowingly untruthful voices. They know they're doing a con trick because they know actually there is a God. But they'll lie. And some unknowingly and untruthful. They don't know anything about anything. And they've just been brought to the top because they fit the agenda. And they propagate this very gross materialism like we were talking about earlier. And all the sort of tricks of the trade are used to persuade people that their life is unimportant and accidental. And things like socialism and Marxism and communism, relativism, pluralism, collectivism, identity politics, which we'll come to in a moment, feminism, humanism, transhumanism, all those things equal no God. That's what they're for. That's ultimately what they're for. It's nothing to do with wealth distribution and happiness for the human life. It's nothing to do with that. It's to deny the classroom, to deny that there's good and evil, to deny that there's God. So some of, some of those things sound quite nice, like you were saying, until you realize what they, are, what they are. If you go to the average 12-year-old and say, do you think equality is a good thing? They'll go, well, well sure. You know, we should all be treated with respect and treated equal and so on. It sounds nice, but that's not really what it is. Humanism, you know, we're the top of the tree. It's all about us. It sounds, well, that sounds, that's, that's not a good thing. They're not nice. They are evil. And they've been set up and designed and executed to separate us from one another and God. So empire being the, the human administration of a negative supernatural force 
and that force is Satan. Its main thing is to divide us. Now, I said, Mel, I'll try and fit this in because I know we're coming up to where you'd break for the hour shortly. <clears throat> Identity politics. You know, you're talking about race and how we're different, how we equal, are we the same, what's going on. Especially the idea of identity politics, when we look at it, we see empire making every effort to disguise division as equality, to disguise uniqueness as sameness. And they, they, they do this over and over again. So as usual, what identity politics purports to be and what it really is are two quite different things. And we see that a lot with empire. So the, the regularly understood definition of identity politics would be something like, you know, it's, it's the aims and the goals of a group of people with a particular racial or ethnic or social or sexual or cultural identity, um, putting themselves over the aims of the broader natural society. So identity politics, they're trying to say, hey, we matter too. You don't ignore us. You, you know, we're okay. You can't say that we're a minority and we're less important, as if anybody would. So let's say, just for fun, and I'll say this tongue-in-cheek, I'll try and conjure a funny image just so we can lighten the image here, but it's still a serious point. Let's say you've got somebody who's a, a socialist, a transvestite, they're Egyptian, and they're a polygamist, right? And that person radically campaigns for all other socialists who like to dress in the clothes of the opposite sex, who are from Egypt and who think that it's okay to have multiple simultaneous spouses, right? So let's say you've got that person and that person happens to live in a society who do not have a socialist heritage like America and think that, in fact, that's harmful and that look questionably upon people who dress up as the opposite sex, as they're entitled to do, and are in any way, not in any way are they interested in Egypt particularly. They're not against it, but they're not interested in Egyptian things particularly. Not, not bothered. And they think that one spouse at a time is probably the best and actually the proper thing to do, because you can't really have a deep relationship with multiple people. You can't do that. It's best to do it with one person, and only then does it become even vaguely possible. So then imagine this, that this identity politics campaigner would tell this society and its people that it is therefore bigoted and racist and sexist and xenophobic and intolerant and so on. Total illogical extreme garbage. Extreme garbage. Obviously extreme garbage. So I say again to you, I was looking at my notes from last time, bullet points of what we talked about. I said this last time to you a year ago. It's garbage on purpose because what one trick empire pull, pulls is, it's very, it sets defeat and resignation in a person's heart when they see obvious extreme garbage accepted into, apparently accepted into mainstream life. It makes people think, well, there's no point. If that's what normal is now, I'm checking out. I'm stopping engaging. That's what, that's, it's, it's stupid on purpose for that reason. And one of the people tasked with setting this extreme garbage into mainstream culture was the very evil Barack Hussein Obama, a man who did so much to divide us from one another. And he did this by aggressively pushing, above all else, identity politics at every opportunity. 
it would be black america african americans hispanic americans you know it's it's crazy it doesn't make any sense in my personal experience america is not very racist at all in fact it, it is for me the least racist place i've ever been to and i've traveled widely all over the world wherever i go in the states from whether it's poor folks, rich folks, educated, uneducated, working, middle, upper class, or whatever the equivalents are here, wherever, I see very little, if any, evidence of racism. I mean, I see people who feel disenfranchised and who have been told it's because they are black or white or tall or short or straight or gay or Portuguese or Irish or something like that, but it's not true. That's not racism. That's just they're disenfranchised because they've made a mistake in something. So division is an ongoing stunt that empire pulls on us. And, and I've traveled, as I say, to many states in this place. I have yet to meet one racist person, whether it's in Chicago, you know, Badlands, or whether it's in the Bronx, Badlands. Never. I meet people who have cultural preferences, who prefer certain types of food, clothing, music, art, values, morals, traditions. But that's not racism. That's choice. And, you know, because I am not particularly drawn to Asian culture does not make me anti-Asian, doesn't make me racist. It means I am drawn to European culture because I'm European. And that's my natural inclination. And as any mature thinking adult knows as you move around the world you learn that every culture has certain valuable things they all have them certain gifts and inclinations and tendencies and emotional and intellectual strengths and weaknesses lots of different things unique to their cultures and maybe if you measured them all out all the hundred tribes of the world they probably all equal out about the same maybe they do maybe they don't you can't quite tell it's hard to say that and it's unwise to generalize too much because it's hard to measure cultural quality. It's a very personalized thing, that. So the good thing is you don't have to. <laughs> That's not our job. We'll leave that to the governor upstairs to judge all that. You, you and I and the listeners, all we have to do is concentrate on what we like. And naturally, we leave everyone else to enjoy what they like and respect the heritage and the traditions of the place you're in. And if you don't like those things, you should leave. Respect the heritage and the values of the place you're in. And again, I'd say basically no mature person I've ever met would judge the value of another person based on their racial appearance, based on their ethnicity. That would be totally stupid. And only something someone who has other more serious mental disorders would ever do. And I, all the thousands of people I've met around the world, not a single person, I would say, is racist. So as, as we've said before, you know, everyone knows the term racist in mainstream media is meaningless. Anyone treated differently for any reason now is able to be called this or that or the other. Extreme rubbish on purpose. So part of truth-telling is every single time you come across that to call it out, either with humor Sometimes gently, sometimes forcefully. But every single time you come across it, call it out, especially when you're with other people. I'm sure you've heard that religion hijacked morality. But I'm glad you're making the distinction of what the teachings are, you know, what they're supposed to be in the false creation of a business where you are given a pardon 
for your sins, depending on how much you donate to the respective religious organization. Well, it's, it's the ultimate irony. I'll make a quick comment on that. Why was Christ killed? Because he threatened the institution of the religions around him, the Roman and Jewish institutions. He threatened their existence. They killed him on the technicality of blasphemy, but it was really because he threatened the destruction of their false spiritual institutions and instead created real spiritual community, which is me and you talking to each other. And that's our pathway to God. That's that's why they killed him, because he threatened the institutions. So even in his own lifetime, they were like, oh, my dear me. Oh, my dear me. Let's get rid of this guy right now. So they did. So churchianity and Christianity have no relationship. There's very, very few churches I've been in that know what they're talking about. And in fact, having met very capable, uh, renowned Bible scholars in the last five years, they all also, privately, all of them will agree with me on that point. And publicly, one or two of them have agreed on that point. So it's no, it's no giant subversive thing to say that, that the church on the whole doesn't represent Christian spiritual philosophy. It doesn't. It really doesn't. But it doesn't mean that that's no good. It means that you have to get to it like everything else yourself, like everything else on your show, decide for yourself, go and look at it yourself. And if you see someone who inspires you, who feels passionate about it, like I do, talk to them, read the stuff, listen to them. Why do they feel that way? Why are they passionate? Why do they care? Somebody's passion usually is going to show you something, either negatively that they just, you know, they've got it wrong and they're just on a a wild goose chase, or that there's something truly there that set the heart on fire and it's set the heart on fire and it's burned for 10, 20, 50, 70 years. And you're like, wow, okay, that's worth taking a look at for a weekend. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll go and look at that. Maybe I'll read this woman's book. Maybe I'll listen to this guy's video. I'll take a look. So truth in the end is always your own truth. You have to decide for yourself that connects you to absolute truth. So you have to put it through the filter of your own truth that will show you whether the truth you're looking at on the outside is real or not. Because this truth is black and white. It's right or wrong. There's no in-between. It is obvious, Neil, to me that the, the raw teachings, whether it's Christianity, Islam, Judaism, Judaism or, and many other religions, they have been infiltrated by, by a control mechanism to keep the masses in fear and submissive without questioning. And let me make a distinction. I grew up a Roman Catholic. I see the Roman Catholic Church of today, not the Catholics who attend church every Sunday. They're innocent bystanders, in my opinion. But take this new Jesuit Pope as an example. And this might offend some people. I have no doubt in my mind that he is a Marxist, one-world government advocate who is using the Vatican platform to advance a very dark agenda. That being said, I have many friends who are Christians, and I have to tell you, they're very in line with my own values and morals and, and what we wish for our children's future. So I don't generalize. I just differentiate. Yeah, I think that's wise to do. And you, you have to be able to differentiate between institutions and real spiritual practice. What uh, Christian life is about, basically, is about loving one another. And what that is, I mean, I could talk to you about that for two hours and, you know, Honestly, most men would think, oh my God, I'm not listening to that. Love is a whole thing. It's a a whole practice. It's a discipline of how to even do that. 
But Christian life basically shows you that through truth, you find love. And that love is, is an active mystical force that connects us to one another and to God. So it's a very exciting thing when you really get to the heart of what it is. But you have to extricate it. You have to get to the true, what they call exegesis of Christian philosophy by ignoring what the false churches say. Now, there are some good churches. It would be stupid for me to say otherwise. I've been to some of them in Europe, a little bit in the States, much more so. There are some good churches who understand theology and who do a clear reading of what's happening in the world. There are some, but they're falling very out of favor because they're not liberal. They're very conservative in the values because they stick to what is true. And that always appears in a liberal culture as very conservative and old-fashioned. Well, old-fashioned, if it's real, is real. I don't care if it's modern or old-fashioned. It doesn't matter to me. Is it true? That's all that counts. And one last thing before you give us your coordinates and all, you know, I, I keep saying and because this is the season premiere, I'd like to just leave you with this first segment that love is gratitude and practicing gratitude. I don't know if you've heard the reports lately, but every day when you, we express gratitude and receive the, the same, our brain releases dopamine and serotonin, the two yeah. crucial neurotransmitters responsible for emotions, and they make us feel good. They enhance our mood immediately, making us feel happy from the inside. So if you're not having a good day, just understand that it too will pass. Feel grateful for the experience, for the lesson, for the wisdom that you're acquiring every day. But Neil, how can people learn more about your work? What's up with you this year and uh, any events coming in the next year? Well, the best thing to do, frankly, is to go to neilkramer.com and you can see all the stuff there. There's podcasts, there's uh, downloads, there's writing, there's videos. You can contact me directly if you'd be interested in talking to me on a professional basis. Uh, that's the best thing to do. I, I always have events every year, but I, I usually organize them in December, January, so I can't say exactly what that is yet, but there'll be things happening for sure. So please go along and take a look at neilkramer.com. There's loads of free stuff on there. Perhaps if you look at the Romecasts, R-O-A-M, Rome as in roaming. If you look at the Romecasts, there's about 30 plus hours of free uh, podcast downloads on there, which will give you an idea of what I'm about and the kind of things that are interesting to me. And if you like those, then that kind of unlocks some of the other work if you're, you might find that interesting too. So take a look, neilkramer.com. Excellent. Well, folks, we're going to be unpacking so much more in part two. And as you know, we put this first segment on YouTube, but we have to kind of tone it down lately. Not because I want to. And there were certain words used on this segment that, you know, it's more than guaranteed that the video will be demonetized, shadow banned, the same thing. And when we come back, we're going to talk about this, the censorship, and what we should expect coming in the next year. 2020 is going to be a very interesting year for multiple reasons. We'll talk about uh, some of the current world events as well. I'm here with my special guest, Neil Kramer, on this season premiere, season 12, beginning today. Go to the member section. This is Mel Fabregas, and you are listening to Veritas. Don't go anywhere. Thank you for listening to the first part of this important Veritas interview. To listen to the rest and all of our material, proceed to the member section or join the Veritas family by subscribing. Click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. You can make your purchase with a credit card, PayPal, cash, check, money order, 
and even cryptocurrency. We are now accepting Bitcoin, Litecoin, and Ethereum. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for Focus Life Force Energy, MMS, CBD Pure Hemp Oil, Divinia Water, Pure Organic Sulfur, Flash Drives with all our Sanitas and Veritas seasons, and other great products. And if you're listening on YouTube, like, subscribe, and share it. And click the bell to be notified when new interviews are available. Now, proceed to the members section or subscribe, to listen to the rest of the interview. You don't want to miss it. Thank you for listening to Veritas. Because you don't want to believe. You want to know.